Well, I don't know if you've ever had the the feeling or an awareness uh, that the place that you have been invited into is a little bit beyond your worthiness, maybe. Maybe worthiness isn't the right word. But I remember as a young seminarian uh, attending the church that I was uh, attending at the time, the, the pastors and elders decided it would be a good thing to give us some experience by bringing us into their elder meetings. And I remember sitting there uh, in my early 20s, uh, fresh out of college, going through seminary, sitting with these godly men who had been in ministry for decades, and just thinking to myself, I, I shouldn't be here. Uh, thinking to myself that I was, I was above my pay grade at that, at that time. And I remember listening to them talk about issues that were facing the church and pray about things that were going on in the church and, and just pour over what the, the will of God was for that church at that time. And I remember sitting in those meetings thinking to myself, don't say anything to make you look dumb. And they would often call on us and want to get our opinion and our thoughts and they would want us to interject. And that was probably the most intimidating times that, that I really had ever experienced to that point in time as a, as a young man. But maybe you've been in, in the presence of a celebrity or an athlete or one of your just personal heroes, and you've had that feeling of just feeling like you're overwhelmed, like maybe you shouldn't be there, that, that you're not quite sure why you get to be in the presence of this person or in the presence of this group of people. Well, when we feel that here on, on earth and when we feel that about fellow men, it's a, a small glimpse, and let me em- emphasize small on this, into what Isaiah experiences in the passage that we're going to look at together this week, and that's out of Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 7. In this passage, Isaiah the prophet is brought before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's a- allowed to see the glory of God in a way that few others have ever witnessed the glory of God. If you remember last week, we covered this verse from Colossians 1.16, which said, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so last week, we teed up this whole series by talking about the reality and the fact that everything that God has done, past, present, and future, is for his glory. And really, that's what this whole series is about. We covered these goals last week of what we're doing in and through this series to gain a better understanding of redemptive history, tracing the theme of God's glory, to gain a better appreciation of the sovereignty of God, to gain a a better appreciation for our own salvation and how God's glory factors into that and how God's sovereignty factors into our salvation. And certainly to hopefully cultivate and develop a, a greater passion and zeal to go and to reach the lost with the gospel and to see them become trophies of God's glory, trophies of God's grace again as well. Well, this glory that is going to permeate so much of this series, we're going to come face to face, or at least as close as we possibly can to coming face to face with the the unveiled glory of God in this passage together this evening. Grab your Bibles, take them if you're not already there. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 6.1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, 640 B.C. is what we're talking about here, 640 B.C. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This image of the glory of God, which even surpasses that of Moses as Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. Because you remember, Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock as the Lord passes by in Exodus chapter 33. And it says there that Moses was only permitted to see what? The back of the glory of God, the backside of God's glory. Well, here you have Isaiah, the prophet, who at this point in time in his career is a young man. And he goes to the temple and is ushered into the divine courts, the royal courts. And he sees the full display of the glory of God on the throne in front of him. But before we get to this description, I want us to go back to the Garden of Eden. And I want us to think about Genesis 3 verse 8. Genesis 3 verse 6, our world changed forever as Eve reached out and took from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate and gave some to her husband Adam who was with her. But then in verse 8 we read this, and they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice what they didn't do. They didn't hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and look at each other and say, what in the world is that? They didn't hide because they were afraid of the presence of the Lord God because rather they hid because of what? Their, their own shame, which was brought about by sin. See, they were used to the presence of God. They weren't shocked. They weren't surprised. They weren't floored that all of a sudden God should be in the garden with them, walking in the coolness of the, the evening, in the garden with them. They weren't shocked by the presence of the Lord. They were afraid and appalled by the guilt and shame of their sin. Why do I bring that up? Well, because from Genesis 3 onwards, God's relationship with man and the, the relationship of man to the glory of God has forever been altered. Ever since Genesis 3, verse 8 there, onward, man has never experienced the, the, the full presence of God dwelling permanently with them. Why? Because of sin. Think about the way that God's presence showed up after that in the, the scriptures. And this isn't an exhaustive list, but it's at least some of the way that it, it has shown up. Number one, when Israel was being led out of Egypt, God's presence was made visible through the, the pillar of fire and smoke, right? But this was a, a veiled form of the presence of God. This was a temporary form of the presence of God. Outside of that, you had the, the Ark of the Covenant, wherein God's presence took up again a, a temporary residence between the cherubim at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence was there, but it was temporary. And of course, then that presence had to be veiled, had to be cut off, had to be separated from the people. And that was done through the what? Through the, the tabernacle. 
which became a mobile vehicle, if you will, for the, the Holy of Holies to, to journey with Israel throughout their wilderness wanderings until finally, even then, the, the, the ark was brought in by King David. And King David said to the Lord, Lord, I want to build you a what? Temple. Because here I sit in a house of fine cedar. Here I sit in, a, in the lap of luxury and in opulence. And the Lord dwells in a tent. We know that David was not allowed to, but we know that Solomon was allowed to build the next dwelling place of the Lord on earth, which was the temple. And yet that again was cut off from, separated from mankind, except for on one day out of the year where the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, right? But outside of that, it was, there was no access. The dwelling place of God was there, but it was there in a temporal form, and it was there in an isolated form. Man and God had to be separated well, there was not just one temple, but two temples. And also then we read in Ezekiel chapter 10 that because of the great sinfulness of Israel, because they were literally setting up idols in the temple, idols in the house of God, God's glory, what? Left. God's glory leaves the temple. Do you know the next time we see God's glory in scripture? John 1.14. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. But even that glory, right? Even that glory was a Philippians 2 glory. It was a veiled glory. It wasn't the fullness. This was not what Isaiah was witnessing in Isaiah chapter 6. This was the glory of God veiled by Jesus' full humanity. Well, why was that necessary? It was necessary so that his followers would not be absolutely consumed by the presence of the fullness of the glory of God. But in Isaiah 6, we get this glimpse behind the curtain into the full presence of God's glory. And what we'll find is that this vision of the glory of God is ultimately interrupted again. Why? Because of the prophet's own awareness of the crushing reality of his sin and his guilt and his shame. See, as we're looking at this whole series and understanding that God does everything for his glory, it's important that we understand what his glory really is. It's a word that we throw around. It's a word that we talk about. It's a word that we say. It's a word that we sing. It's a word that we read. But how often do we consider what his glory really is all about? It's his perfect majesty. It's his full perfection. It's the absolute brilliance. In the Hebrew, it was the word kavod, which meant weightiness, Right? Just the, the, the heaviness of the, the presence of God. In the New Testament, it's translated as the word doxa, where we get our, our phrase doxological, right? Praise to the, the glory of God. That doxa is the brilliance of God, the, the blinding greatness, the, the majesty. It's Revelation 21 and, and 22. It's where there will be no sun in the new heavens and new earth because the, the glory of God will be all the light that is needed, the brilliance of the glory of God. And Isaiah gets to see this. Isaiah 6.1 again says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The first thing that the prophet says is, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. One commentator translates this, I saw the sovereign one. And notice the way it's set up in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was a troubled, but, but at the same time, a, a, a helpful king in many ways to Israel. 
to the people of God, and, and he's gone now, and now as the nation is going through a transition, the prophet sees the one who is truly ruling. He sees the, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. I saw the, uh, the Lord sitting upon a throne. If we go back to 1 Kings chapter 22, there's a, a scene that takes place where you have in the midst of the divided kingdom, a rare occurrence where uh, this prophet named Micaiah, Micaiah gets to, to go into uh, this circumstance where you have the king of Judah, the southern king, and the king of Israel both together sitting side by side in their thrones, right? These are the two head honchos of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, respectively. And here's Micaiah the prophet, and Micaiah the prophet says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Micaiah is intentional with his words there in this prophecy. In fact, God is intentional through the words of Micaiah there to say, you're impressed by these two human kings sitting on their thrones, the king of Israel and the king of Judah? Look, my prophet is going to tell you he knows who the real king is. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. The word there is actually not Yahweh, but Adonai. I saw the master. I saw the ruler. I saw the sovereign one on the throne. Paul House, who's a commentator, says this, Uzziah may be dead, but Yahweh rules and reigns. He's the Lord sitting on the throne. The second thing he says is that it's the Lord high and lifted up. High and lifted up. And as we read that in English, we think, well, that's modifying throne. But it's actually not modifying throne. It's, it's modifying the Lord. In the Hebrew grammar, in the Hebrew language there, you can see that the, with the, the way that the word is written there, these adjectives high and lifted up, that they go back to the Lord, not necessarily back to throne. And so Isaiah is seeing that the, the Lord, that God is exalted, that he is far above and beyond anyone else and everything else, that he is the greatest king, the highest ruler that has ever been. And he says, in the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe, the, the train is the symbol of the, the majesty of the one who wears the robe. And Isaiah sees here that the train is not just long, but it fills the entirety of the temple. The word temple that Isaiah uses here is interesting because it's actually a, a word that he borrows from the Sumerian dialect. And he carries it over here, and it's a word for a temple that was applied to pagan cities, and it was the house of the chief god of the city. It was the, the, the temple that was the temple of the most powerful god in the city, and Isaiah borrows that word and brings it over here to this vision to say that the train of God's robe fills the highest courts, fills the greatest temple. It's interesting here that he stops at the robe, isn't it? Have you noticed that that's as high as his description of the one on the throne goes, is the train of the robe. And maybe that's because at this point in time, he, he just dared not go any higher in his description for fear of failing at, at being able to accurately use words to describe what he saw. Or maybe this was as high as he was even able to, to go with his eyes before he was overwhelmed. Either way, this sight that Isaiah sees, this vision of this throne would stick with the prophet. Listen to what he says later on in the book. He says in Isaiah 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, 
You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. The language there, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms. Later we would say this in Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like, the, like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He sits above, he's exalted, he's high and lifted up. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The Lord says there, I am the one who is high and lifted up. I dwell in the high and holy place. Man, this is our God. This is the God that we worship. This is who he is. This is where he dwells. This is the, the, the God who exists today in this same form, in this same glory. Point number one tonight is this. Meditate on the sheer magnitude of the glory of God. Linger long over thoughts about this scene, thoughts about how glorious God is, how magnificent he is, how high and lifted up he is, how far above everything else our, our God is. We live in a time, especially right now, historically even, where there's so much turmoil going on. There are so many things that can distract us. There are so many places for us to become over, overcome and overwhelmed by a, a sense of angst and anxiety and fear and concern and worry. And it's good for us to remember this vision of God. He's the one high and lifted up. What Isaiah sees in this passage is something none of us have ever witnessed before. We will one day, but we have never seen this before, experienced this before. And in fact, if you think of your most intimate moment with God, it pales in comparison to what we're talking about here in Isaiah chapter 6. If you think about going on the, the retreats or the, the worship services that we have, or even to the moment that you were saved, still those moments were not an experience with the glory of God that we are eavesdropping on in Isaiah chapter 6 right here the grandeur of God's glory. What we experience is a mediated, a veiled form still of the glory of God. We read this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. He says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're not there yet. We're in that process from one degree of glory to another. One degree being that moment of conversion where we were positionally sanctified in Christ. Now we are being progressively sanctified in Christ. Again, another degree of glory. And then there will come a day where we are free from the, the very presence and power of sin, where we are perfectly sanctified in Christ. And we will behold the full glory of God that Isaiah gets to see here in Isaiah chapter 6. But we're not there yet. And rather than discourage you, I hope this is an encouraging thought to you. That your best day as a believer here is going to pale 
to the moment that you get to stand in the presence of this God, to behold his glory. This is what Adam and Eve had before the fall. This is what, what Peter, James, and John experienced, but for a moment when Jesus took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's transfigured before them and he, he appears before them in, in the fullness of his glory and they hear the voice coming down from heaven and, and they say, hey, Jesus, this is good. Let us build some tents and hang out up here on the mountain for a while. We want to be in the presence of your glory. This is what John got to see a glimpse of in the book of Revelation. And this is what awaits all of us in the new heavens and the new earth. In a lot of ways, this is the opposite of, of the Wizard of Oz movie, right? Where Dorothy didn't know about the curtain that was hide, hiding the, the, the tiny man. All she saw was the giant head of the, the terrifying wizard until the curtain was pulled back and, and she saw this frail man who was back there and she was thinking to herself, well, you're not scary at all. You're just a mean old man who's trying to scare us. Well, men, it's, it's the opposite that we experience. The veil is coming up, covering up the, the, the terrifying, the glorious, the almighty, the brilliant, the powerful, the majestic, the grand God of glory. And we're tempted to think that there's a tiny little man standing behind the veil. It's not a tiny little man standing behind the veil. It's the God of creation. It's the God of glory. It's the God that Isaiah sees here. This is who we pray to. When you bow your head, when you say, Heavenly Father, this is who you address. This is who saved you and who is able to save your loved ones. This is the one who sets up thrones and tears them down, who sets up presidential administrations and tears them down, who sets up Supreme Court justices and tears them down. This is the one who changes out seasons like garments. This is the one who declares the beginning from the end. And what do we know of his glory right now? We know even less than Isaiah. And what did Isaiah see? He saw the fringes of his robe. Job chapter 26. Job chapter 26, verses 4 through 14. The prophet says this. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By the, his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, says Job, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? The vision that Job has of God, the descriptions of God, and at the end he says, this is, this is barely scratching the surface. This is the fringes of his, of his garment. This is the outer edges of his glory that we get to comprehend how faint a whisper do we hear of him? We need to dwell more 
to meditate on, to marinate in thoughts about this glorious God. It's going to improve our worship. It's going to improve our prayer life. It's going to encourage us. It's going to give us hope. The prophet keeps going in his vision. He says in verses two through four, and above him, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. What a terrifying scene. The first thing he says, his gaze is diverted from the robe of of the Lord and he he begins to look and he looks up and he sees the seraphim. This is literally, it's a transliteration from the Hebrew word seraph and then plural im, seraphim. In Hebrew, it translates as the burning ones, the fiery ones, the flaming ones. These angelic creatures that he sees and each of them have six wings. It says with two, they were flying. And the image there is that they are, they are at the ready. They are prepared. They are hovering in, in, in readiness for the Lord to, to beckon them, to send them. Why? Because they are angelic creatures. What do angelic creatures do? They serve the king. And so they are hovering in midair. They are flying. They are not standing. They are not seated. They are not laying down. They are at the ready to do what the Lord, the king of kings, wants them to do. With two they flew. With two, though, they are covering their faces. And we may think to ourselves, well, they're covering their faces because the glory of God. And that's true, but I want us to think about that because these are sinless beings. This is not sinful man. This is a sinless creature with no shame, no guilt, no fallenness, that because of the sheer magnitude of the glory of God is forced to shield and veil their face before God's brilliance. And with two, they cover their feet. There's confusion around that idea there. There's a lot that, that think this is a, a, an exercise of, of modesty, that they're covering up their nakedness because they don't want to be unclean or shameful in the presence of God. But these angelic creatures that he sees, the burning ones, think about God's presence, and so often it's associated with fire, isn't it? Moses is called out of what? The burning bush, yes? And then you think about Exodus chapter 19, or, or even prior to that, then as Israel's being led out of, of Egypt, they are being led by the pillar of fire. And then in Exodus chapter 19, the glory of God descends upon Mount Sinai before giving the Ten Commandments, and the mountain is smoking, right? This is the, the, the appropriate response. This is what the, the presence of God's glory does. And these angelic creatures are aflame in the presence of the Lord. And what are they doing? They're calling out to one another. And what are they saying? They are saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's complete otherness is emphasized by that threefold cry of holy, holy, holy. He is distinct. He is separate. He is altogether different and other than you and I. He is holy, holy, holy. But it's not just there. He goes on. He says, is the Lord of hosts. It's a title for God that implies that he is the Lord of armies, the Lord of the the angelic host, the Lord of, of the angelic powers. This is not just God's complete otherness with holy, 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 but God's complete power in that he is the Lord of hosts. 
And then it says what the whole earth is full of his glory. That's the complete glory of God. So these angelic creatures stress his complete otherness, his complete power, and his complete glory in what they are calling out to one another back and forth and back and forth, such that the foundations, the threshold of the temple begins to shake at their crying, at their calling. The whole earth is full of his glory. We may read that and think to ourselves, well, when did that happen? I thought that's yet future, and some want to make it future because there's actually no verb in the Hebrew here. So the translators supply the verb, and so some want to supply a future verb. The whole earth will be full of his glory. But when we look at Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is, is beholding this in the present time. And so it seems as though this is a statement about the present reality. And so what it figures to me is that this is in line with Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare what the, the glory of God. Romans chapter 1, that his invisible attributes, namely his divine power, has been seen since the creation of all things. Colossians 1.16, for in him everything was created in heaven and on earth. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, they were created through him and for him. That this is yet another testament to the reality that all of creation testifies and magnifies and exists to what? Glorify God. The whole earth is full of his glory and the sound of this shakes the threshold of the temple. Again, Exodus chapter 19, when God's glory descends on the mountain, the mountain shakes. This is a powerful scene that Isaiah beholds. As these sinless angelic creatures that only can be defined by him as, as burning ones attend to the throne of God with faces covered and bodies veiled, all the while listening, hovering, ready to do the bidding of their Lord. This is the right and proper response to the power of God's glory. This is what Adam and Eve missed and what we so often miss ourselves. And while we don't experience the, the fullness of his glory the way that Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, we can learn something from these angelic creatures as we do what our second point is tonight, and that's this, ponder the power of this glorious God. We talked about the, the, the grandeur, the, the, the sheer magnitude of his glory, that he is the highest of all exalted gods, that he is the king of kings, lord of lords, that he is the, the, the chief, Right? And now we're talking about the power of this glorious God that leads even sinless beings to veil their face, that causes the cry of these angelic creatures about this glorious God to make the foundation of the temple and the threshold of the temple shake under their voice. Again, we're looking at the curtain and all the while behind the curtain is this glorious God. And we have to remember and be careful not to fall prey to domesticating him. To thinking about this glorious God as though he's the, the tiny man behind the curtain making the gigantic wizard face work. He's the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. If we recall this, if we think about this, if we ponder this, it'll change the way that we approach him. Again, think about your prayer life. How do you approach him? Is it flippant? Are we too casual? Are we too presumptuous? Are we, maybe we're the opposite. Maybe we're too timid in our requests. 
This is the one hearing us. Let's ask big things of him. Maybe your time in the word. This is the word of this God. Are we distracted when we approach the, the word of God? Are we intentional about it when we come to it, thinking to ourselves, okay, I'm going to have an encounter with the living word of the God from Isaiah chapter 6, the glorious and powerful God. Are we humble and teachable when we approach his word? Prayer, time in his word. How about obedience to his will? As we seek out his will, are we really truly pliable? Are we willing to surrender our will to his will even when our will and his will are at odds with one another? Are we fully submitted to his will? How about in our response to sin? When we consider this vision of God and knowing that this is the God who is omniscient, who knows all, omnipresent, is everywhere, sees all, beholds all things. When we think about our sin, are we troubled? Are we grieved over our sin? Are we truly sorry over our sin? There's other categories we could think about too. Uh, fear over future events. Do we consider this God when we're fearful over what the outcome of tomorrow will be? If we were Isaiah here, if we stood before this God the way that Isaiah does here, what would we do? What would we say? Guys, the enemy is attacking the church in weird ways. What would we say? How would we respond to an encounter like this with our glorious God? Would we do what Isaiah does here and as we're about to see, as he feels the overwhelming pressure and magnitude of his sin, would we cry out this pronouncement of judgment that he does? Look at verses five through seven. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Again, Isaiah is seeing the Lord. And there's still the question, how, do we, how does Isaiah see the Lord? I thought when we read things like in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God or John 4.24, God is spirit. How can we understand that Isaiah sees the Lord and I I think we get an answer to that in Isaiah chapter, or excuse me, John chapter 12, verse 41, where John says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now we understand what Isaiah is seeing on the throne. Isaiah is seeing Jesus on the throne. Remember last week when we talked about how there's the agreement between the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father, right? Jesus is the one on the throne and these angelic creatures are saying of Jesus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what does the prophet do? Finally, he responds to this vision and he says, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The word for unclean there is, is the common word to, for, for ceremonial defilement. What would disqualify somebody from worship at the time? Isaiah say, saying, that's, that's me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among the people of unclean lips. I'm unworthy to be here. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I can't stand to be in your presence. And what does he do in response? He says, woe is me. Now, woe is a word that the prophet will pick up and apply to the people of Israel or the people of Judah later on in this book. But the first thing he does is he applies it to himself as he stands face to face with the full glory of Christ. He's made aware of his sinfulness. And he says, woe is me, judgment upon me. Even as far as saying, damned am I in the presence of the glory of God. This intense awareness. See, this is why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. This is why the glory of God has been veiled. This is why the glory of God has been isolated from Genesis 3, 8 onwards. Why? Because the sinfulness of man cannot stand to be in the presence of the fullness of the glory of God. God's glory will always win and God's glory will always consume man in his sinfulness. In Habakkuk chapter 2, the prophet says of the Lord, God, you are of purer eyes than to even look upon evil. Isaiah becomes suddenly cognizant of his sinfulness and the incompatibility of his sinfulness in God's glory. Sin interrupts the ability of God's glory to dwell in its fullest form among his people. Again, let's go back through some of these again. Where did God first dwell? Well, we could go back to the wilderness wanderings, but let's start with the ark. There's a separation between man and the glory of God. Tabernacle, separation between man and the glory of God. Temple, separation between man and the glory of God. Jesus, okay, now we're beginning to peel back on the separation concept, but the veiling is still there. Jesus comes and we see his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, but this is a veiled glory. But it's the presence of God with his people. How about now? How does the presence of God dwell with his people currently? Through the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul calls the church the temple of the living God. Why? Because we are God's dwelling place. How? Through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And yet still, that is a veiled form of the glory of God. See, our, our sin has created a polarizing effect between the holiness and glory of God and the guilt and corruption of our flesh. We cannot stand to see the glory of God. We cannot be in the presence of the glory of God. And the only logical response was the response of Isaiah when he said, woe is me. And honestly, man, every time we go to prayer, we should start with the same words. We should. When we approach the Lord, we should approach the Lord with a crushing awareness of our own sin. When we come before the Lord, we should cower in fear, if not for the cross. See, we're going to see God's response in just a moment to Isaiah when he tells one of the angels, hey, grab a coal, go, touch his lips, and in touching his lips, you're going to be making atonement for his sin. And that cleanses Isaiah of his guilt. That cleanses Isaiah of his shame. That 
cleanses and enables Isaiah to stand there and then hear the commissioning call of God to go and speak to the people. Who will go for me? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. What changes between woe is me to here I am, send me? Atonement. It's the same thing for us too, man. What changes between us saying, woe is me to Heavenly Father? Atonement. Atonement. Final point tonight is this. Thank God for atonement in light of the gravity of sin. Thank God for atonement in light of the gravity of sin because here's the deal. If, if we meditate on his grandeur of his gloriousness, if we ponder the power of this holy God, it's only gonna lead us to the conclusion that Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter six to say, God, I, I am unworthy. God, woe is me. Damned am I because of my sinfulness in light of who you are and how glorious you are. And but for the cross, we would be undone. We would be lost, as Isaiah says. I am Silent, I am speechless. I have nothing to utter in my defense for I am wrecked before you, God. And but for God's grace in our lives, because again, look at verse six and seven there. What does it say? It says this, it says, then one of the seraphim flew over to me. Well, why does the seraphim do that? Does he sit there and go, oh man, I feel bad for Isaiah. I'm gonna go take this song. God, are you good with me? I'm gonna go do this. Are, are you good with that? Why does the seraphim do that? Does the seraphim do that? Because Isaiah sits there and says, okay, I am choosing to follow the seraphim. Seraphim, will you please come and atone for my guilt by touching my lips with this coal? I need you, seraphim. Will you come do that? Does Isaiah invite the seraphim's action? No, what does the seraphim do? Who's the only one the seraphim will obey? God. So what's written in between the lines of Isaiah 6.5 and 6.6 is that God instructs the seraphim to make atonement for the sin of Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, it's an initiated act by God that cleanses the prophet, that makes atonement. God has mercy on Isaiah. Isaiah has nothing to offer the Lord. Isaiah is wrecked, he's undone, he's guilty, he's dead to rights. And God intervenes with atonement. And why does he do that? Well, he does that because he knows he's gonna use Isaiah to go forth with a message of repentance and a message eventually in Isaiah 53 of what? Of the hope of the coming son of, of, of God, the, the suffering servant, that would bear the iniquity for all. That he was gonna go and proclaim the hope of the one that God was gonna lay the iniquity of us all on this one. That God knew that he was gonna use Isaiah. He was atoning for the sin of Isaiah to go and allow Isaiah to go out and talk about the one who would ultimately atone for the sins of all who he would choose to have that same mercy and grace on that he showed to Isaiah there. See, why does God atone for the sin of Isaiah? Is it for Isaiah's benefit? Not foundationally, it's for God's glory. Does Isaiah benefit from that? Yes, absolutely. When we think about our salvation then, is our salvation primarily about our benefit? Not foundationally. 
Do we benefit? Yes, absolutely. But what's our salvation about? The glory of God. You're not going to go proclaim scriptural words the way that Isaiah did. But when God saves you, he's saying to you, who's going to go for me? I've atoned you. I've cleansed you. I've set you apart from me. You're my servant now. But first, Isaiah's sin had to be dealt with. Again, that feeling of, I shouldn't be here. I have to imagine that that's probably what the prophet was feeling from the word go of this vision. I don't think it took him to verse 5 to get to the place of going, oh man, I'm in trouble. I think he felt that right off the bat. Oh man, I'm in trouble. His awareness of his sinfulness and the grandeur and power of God would have consumed him and destroyed him had God not been merciful and gracious to him. See, man, sin is a massive problem when it comes to the glory of God. It's a massive problem when it comes to the glory of God because what we're going to find out in, as we come back together next week is this, that the reason that sin is such a major deal and the reason that sin is so completely and totally incompatible with God's glory is that sin is a direct frontal attack on the glory of God. We're going to look at that next time in Romans chapter 1. For now, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you were merciful to us. Thank you that you were merciful to Isaiah. Lord, thank you that you atoned for his sin, that you forgave him, Lord, that you made him right with you in that moment, that you did not just consume him out of the, the fire of your holiness, which certainly you would have been in the right to do. God, you are so glorious and majestic and good and holy and perfect and powerful. Lord, forgive us, forgive me for not thinking enough on that and for not approaching you with enough awe and wonder and worship in response to that. And even as I pray this, God, I'm mindful of what you say in Romans chapter 8, that in Christ you have given us a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we can now approach you Father as Abba, Father. What a privilege, what a right that is only ours through grace. Thank you for that, Father. May you be pleased with our lives. May we edify one another this, this evening and glorify you through the rest of our time together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.